When I started gambling, it got out of control. Remember, I had $10,000 on a game one time and won. And it was, a, well, I owed him $8,800, so I won $1,000. But had I lost, it would have been the end. I bet and won. So yeah. I thought my luck had changed. So I kept on betting, lost another $100,000. $100,000. Easily. So what was that rock bottom? At another helping of hot breath. <sighs> I'm your host, Joel Byers, of course, and our sponsor is, of course, the Whimsical Wax and Wick Candles. These 100% hand poured soy candles are all killer and no filler. We have worked out a killer deal with the promo code as well. All you have to do is go to waxandwick.co and enter 40 off Joel Byers to get 40% off your order. So, can't really beat that. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. I mean, thank you. And thank you to our new iTunes reviews from, quote, Funny Monkey MVP calling Hot Breath pretty funny, but they left five stars, so I appreciate that. And me, 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 me giving five stars with the review saying, Saw him live and it was super duper mega amazing. Wish I could have seen more of him. Well... You can see more of me at my show on Java Monkey every Wednesday at 8.30 or on my comedy class at Highwire Comedy Company. Just go to joelbyerscomedy.com or highwirecomedy.com to register today. But anyway, you can also hear more of me on this episode, which happens to be super duper mega amazing, because today's hot breath is with the one, the only, Jerry Farber. Jerry is an Atlanta legend that shares insight from a 55-year career as a jazz pianist and comedian. He just recently had a documentary released called Geriatric, based on his tumultuous... Tumultuous? Tumultuous. You know what I'm saying. His life. The documentary talks about his life. May it be from his gambling and temper troubles to not ever really breaking out into the national spotlight. However, Jerry has no regrets and plenty of success, not only on stage, but also off his charity work. Yes, and his new family life. Yeah. So, this episode will prove to be a time capsule of an influential entertainer sustaining a successful career for over half a century. So, dust off with hot breath, and Jerry Farber. Oh, you got a candle for my breath? It's a, um, that's, that's our sponsor. Good for you. Wax and Wick. Really? Yeah. And where do you buy them? They're online right now. They're based out of Chicago. You can get them on waxandwick.co. You'll let me know how to get them. I'll buy some. Say what? Yeah, it's a candle. It's a 100% handcrafted, hand-poured soy candle. I buy a lot of candles. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Definitely. Yeah, I do. They have they have some interesting flavors too. We just start talking. Yeah. Just like we're into it. We are into it. Like the fourth day of a honeymoon. We've already gone <laughs> through the preliminary, right? Yeah. That's all we're doing. Mm -hmm. 
How's that? Oh, and there's hot breath water as well. If you want, that's for this you. This is great. Thank if you. If you want some water, well, this will be good. This is a. Uh, well, I appreciate being here. Thank you for doing this, I'm by flattered. the way. Yeah, if, thank you. If you could just please say your full name to the microphone. I am Jerry Farber. Jerry Marcus Farber. Jerry Marcus Farber. Marcus Farber. Thank mm-hmm. you for being on Hot Breath, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're, of course, doing this at the new punchline, your old side door. Part of this. I think a third of this was my club. <laughs> and and you've, you've had a couple clubs here, right? I've had three clubs. The first club, you weren't born yet. And we had acts. It was a little club mm-hmm. in the same neighborhood. And we had Fox, the Jeff Foxworthy and Brett Butler, Richard Jenny, who's a great comic, all at that little place. I think the most we ever paid was $500 for a week. And where was it at, specifically in Atlanta? On Far Road. Okay. Far Road in Atlanta. But the only reason I mentioned the money is because that's how it was at one time. And, of course, they all scored. Yeah. Became, became real successful in every which way. And they were great. Brett Butler was great. Richard Jenny was great. And a lot of other ones. So what was Jeff Foxworthy doing back then? Was he, he was still doing Redneck? He was just getting or? out of IBM. You know, he was working for... So this was the very beginning of Jeff The Foxworthy. very beginning. Wow. And he would come in as an open micer. <laughs> and <laughs> just work out... He was Jeff Foxworthy then. Everybody knew. It's sort of you can tell. Even though Cam Newton yeah. got his behind handed to him in the Super Bowl, you know he's still going to... Yeah. He's good. And Foxworthy was like that then. And now. And, and now, sure. And even in this space, I guess you had a, a club here before Side Door, right? Hasn't this evolved from like... This was four or five other clubs. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeff Fearon had this club for a while. And uh, it was a... They tried an X-rated club here, and that didn't work. <laughs> it's hard. You know, it's hard to, to do these comedy clubs. I admire Jamie and The Punchline, because they... They had the label. It's been around 35 years, I think. Right. But you and always took the, the clean route in sense of you were actually the first person to open up a non-smoking comedy club in the entire right. country. Mm-hmm. I had a funny moment about that show. Was, uh, a couple of women were upset. I, I do tacky jokes. You know, I still tell old, I'm an old guy. I do tacky jokes sometimes. And these two women, and Buckhead women, club was in Buckhead, and they were really annoyed with my show, and they were smoking in my face. And they said, Mr. Farber... It would be like, you know, some of those jokes were really tacky. And I said, I'll never forget it. I know every moment, every nuance. I said, ma'am, you'll never get cancer from my dirty joke, but you're blowing (laughs) cancer in my face. And I said, if you never come again, it'll be fine with me. And we lasted about 12 years there. Oh, wow. We had a really good run there. Uh, That was before all the competition. Okay. I think we even opened a year before Punchline, as I remember. Or, but at the same time. And the non-smoking club, was that, I read that was doctors ordered? Uh, well, I have, uh, I had, from being, I never smoked mm-hmm. cigarettes. And the doctors, and I was coughing a lot. I'd go home coughing, because the club opened up as a smoking club. It opened up smoking. Okay. And my doctor said, if you stay in that atmosphere, you're going to die early, and it's going to be a rugged way to exit the earth. Couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. So I told my partner, great guy, he owned the Buckhead Saloon and Backstreet, he was a real successful club owner. He said, let's go no smoking. And a week later, we had it publicized. New York Times sent a reporter down. Wow. Ted Turner showed up. <laughs> he didn't believe it. He showed up to come in, you know, always has a cigar. 
and our, we had two big football players who were like bouncers, and they didn't let them in. I guess that was back when smoking was advertised like by doctors. It was. It was by doctors. Every football players were smoking. You know wow. what I mean? I mean, it was like it was um, the thing. It was in all the movies. Still is in some of the movies. But and uh, you know, I had a lot of negative reaction, but a lot more positive reaction. I can never understand why people would cater to a group that's a distinct minority who do smoke. The majority, even then, didn't smoke. Mm. Right? You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. didn't smoke. None of my friends smoke. None of my friends today do. I have plenty of fans who smoke. They're entitled to, but there's hardly any place you can go anymore. For smoke. the better, though. To me, it is. I mean, I think Central Park now is no smoking. Even Atlanta's own Piedmont Park is trying to make it no smoking. I mean, it's really a big deal. How long had you been doing comedy before you decided to open up a club? Well, I started comedy when I was 21 years old, but you've got to understand, there were no comedy clubs when I started. Mm -hmm. None. There were, no, there were nightclubs. What year was that? 1960. Okay. So 55, 56 years ago. But I played the piano, which many people think I should play the piano and keep my mouth shut, including my parents. <laughs> but that was my entree to get on a stage at a nightclub. And I'd always take the last 30 seconds to tell a joke. That's how... I got the fever of, ooh, they're laughing. Yeah. You know, you know it's yeah, a, yeah. sort of a, it's a healthy drug, but it's a drug. Well, you know, you're a young oh, comic, and when they yeah. laugh, there's nothing quite like it. And when they don't, there's no medication that I know of that can <laughs> appease the pain, right? You know, Absolutely. They don't love me. I'm so, you know, all yeah. that stuff. So that's how it started. And it's been a good ride, a rocky ride up and down. But I endorsed the career. It's a wonderful way to to make a living you just have to really work harder I think even today you young guys because now there are a lot of clubs and you all have to be more eventful than we did mm. and you decided to open up the club was it during the comedy boom uh, it was uh, bef right before the comedy boom this partner I had Mendel Rahm was a wonderful guy he's gone from the earth now but he was a lovely guy very successful and he loved my show he said let's have a little place uh, he lived in Buckhead mm -hmm. he said there was a 7-Eleven that went out of business club was in a 7-Eleven. <laughs> it was like this other one. It was. It was the space of a 7-Eleven. I think the only one that went out of business ever. But it was in Buckhead on Far Road. Great space. 90 seats. Mm -hmm. No room to hide. And uh, I'll tell you something interesting. It had to do with the times, I'm sure. I was telling my mother about the club, and we're going to have this kid named Jeff Foxworthy is going to show up, and hmm. the Indigo Girls, we had them too. My mother said, great, who's designing your ladies' room? And I said, Mom, it's going to be a ladies' room, you know. She said, no, that's not good enough. You're going to charge $15? That was a big deal at that time. Yeah. You're going to charge $15? If that ladies' room isn't clean all the time, you're, you'll lose your, that club. Wow. So I told my partner, and he agreed. That he said, yeah, let's really do a real nice ladies' room. Makes sense, because if it's not ready... For prime time, you don't keep it prime time. Yeah, that's a great point. It was a good point. I mean, it's, I was totally unaware of what it meant, but mm -hmm. it wasn't just clean. It was really nice and clean. Just like your act. It's for the it's, most part. Well, you but haven't heard me in love. You know, <laughs> we just worked I, together. I'm going to tell you, yeah. I know we did. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't act, and you haven't heard me do other venues, mm -hmm. and I've seen you a lot, and I love your act. I think you're clean. I know that, you know, I'm capable of going as 
far down as I have to. But I think we all need three or four distinct different presentations to make a living today. I really do. Okay. Where you would have your favorite persona that you hope is the one that they see you on Jimmy Fallon. But to get income, you may have to go to Camp Lejeune, and you may have to be a little bit rugged mm -hmm. to relate to these great young men who are soldiers and women, you know, because that's a different crowd than, say, a 60-year-old country club. Their needs are different. Right. So I think you really have to have the wherewithal, like a good quarterback. My image of what we do, Joe, is that we're quarterbacks. We get the ball, which is the, and we have to read. And the ones, and I've done it many times, I throw a lot of interceptions, which means mm -hmm. no laugh. Mm -hmm. I lose the crowd. I've lost the ball. You look at a Brady, and they, you can look at their eyes. They're reading that defense. I see the crowd as a defense, and I have to overwhelm them. And you've seen some of the best quarterbacks perform. I mean, I'm, Lenny Bruce, Steve Martin, I like did. Woody Allen. I've seen them all live, and they were, and I learned all the time. I really wanted this. I wanted it a long time ago. I would much rather be your age. Anybody my age would rather be your age. But I am my age, so I've seen a lot, and I learned from all of them. Uh, Anything I, stand out specifically? That's a great question. All the way to Woody Allen even, Lenny Bruce even, who was known more for dirty words by people who didn't pay attention, they were saying something more substantial than Milton Berle, okay. who was telling jokes. Mm -hmm. I told jokes. But uh, starting with Woody, there was something, you know, his existentialism, Woody Allen, Lenny Bruce, he would say dirty words to get the attention of people who were hypocrites. They would be offended at a dirty word and then go cheat on their wife and, you know, not pay the alimony. I mean, you know, it's a hypocrisy of America then. Mm -hmm. That was Woody Allen's thing. Uh, excuse me, Lenny Bruce. And then Steve Martin was brilliant. I saw Steve Martin here in Atlanta. There were 12 people, and it was an ice storm, and everybody walked to it. It was a before your time at Broadview Plaza. It was a great, uh, a great venue. And he was a kid, and there were 12 people, and he did a two-hour show. That, it kept on going and kept on oh going and kept on going because he had the wherewithal. You know, and this was probably 30, 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago. <laughs> wow. True professionalism like we the were great, talking about. Well, it's because yeah. you know what the Marines say? Many of are called and few are chosen. Mm -hmm. You could be the best act and become the best act ever, but it doesn't mean you're going to make it. Just like football players. The best football players aren't always in the NFL. A lot of them are. Right. So it's where we are, where we locate, if we're in New York the right time, or you got a movie role, and luck has a lot to do with it. You've also, you being a jazz piano player, which is really what you moved to Atlanta and like That's started correct. doing first, mm -hmm. like were there any kind of people equivalent in the you seen in the comedy world that you saw in the jazz world you maybe learned from? I opened for Errol Garner who's got I don't know how many millions of hits. He died he, when he was 50. He'd be he'd be uh, 80 years old today. He was the best jazz pianist I ever heard. I loved him. He was mm -hmm. full of life, full of energy and I opened for him at Chastain Park. Wow. So what's interesting <laughs> to me is how many hits those dead, the artists who are dead they still have millions of hits. It's not just from old people like me. Mm. People who like jazz, they want a history. Woody Allen's got more hits than anybody. Woody Allen. Yeah. And that's not just from old people watching. It's young people that want to know who was this Woody Allen. Right? You know what I mean? The yeah. History. Same thing as studying history in school. 
I believe it's good that we know it. You might not learn anything from it, but at least you say, well, what was that about? Well, that's why I wanted you on the podcast, because I wanted to learn from you and your history, because you've, you've pretty much seen comedy, specifically not just in Atlanta, but nationwide. But like when you started performing in Atlanta, just in the jazz scene, I read you were like the only white member of like a black performer. You really did some homework. <laughs> Wish I had done that much. I was the only white member of a black musicians union. Okay. Because when I moved here, I was a pretty good piano player. And I only got work from the black uh, musicians. They loved the mm. way I played, which was imitating Errol Garner, this jazz guy. And so I joined the union. And the man who ran the union was 80 years old then. His name was P.S. Cook, old guy. He said, Mr. Farber, are you sure you want to join? You know, the white people won't ever give you work. Mm. I said, well, they're not giving me work now. <laughs> it would be like you guys with comedian, right? You'd yeah. go to this club. They're the only ones that pay you attention. And he said, okay, just know you'll be blackballed. And I was for maybe four or five years. I didn't care. I was getting work. Yeah. And I, my first job was at a strip club at the Claremont Hotel in Ponce it's called the Jungle Club. It just closed about a year ago because they're tearing the hotel, building a new on Ponce. You know where that is? Mm-hmm. This is a strip club. in the basement. It was a strip club. Yeah. And I was playing the piano, and I thought it was the hippest thing that ever happened. Playing at a strip club. Great. And a black guy got me that job, named. Uh, 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 oh, pardon me. Um, pardon me. The name. Uh, names are long. It was a good while ago. Yeah. But we stayed there about eight months. My parents came up from Florida thinking it was going to be like a, an old tacky strip club. But just that, like and, music, I mean, comedy is also segregated as well. I mean, there is like, there's a mm-hmm. white and black scene. There is some crossover, but there are specific, you know, polar sides to the comedy world. It's uh, offsetting to me, but how do you feel about it? I mean, it, it's sort of offsetting. It is the way it is. I have performed it at uh, black clubs mm-hmm. I was one of the early acts at the uptown club right and i did okay i didn't do great but i learned how to work a mixed bag because you have to do that this can be a fist fight of a job you know mm-hmm. you have to do you can't be too soft you can't be too hard but a urban audience is a uh, is different a jewish audience is quite different well a lot of people i interview on here especially that have performed at Uptown, have a story of getting booed. Oh, yeah. So what is yours? I didn't get booed because I was uh, appropriately respectful. And I have opening comments. My opening line at Uptown was as good as they've ever had, the owners told me. (laughs) There were a lot of tough-looking, cool black guys up front looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? Mm Mm-hmm. And I would say, and I still say it in some shows, I say, we'll do a line that didn't work. And I say, look at these guys. I know what you're thinking. I used to be a black guy. I will kick all your asses together. And they laugh because it was so absurd. Right. right? I acted like I meant it. It's never failed in certain circumstances. So I have it in my mind to do those things because you've got to, it's got to work. I was hired. That was a, the feature act. Wow. And they loved it. Now, they could have hated it, uh-huh. but they loved it. The same thing happened recently with the, probably a friend of yours, Josh Harris. Yeah, I know Josh. We, we did a couple of shows on the road, and um, there was a club we were working that's no longer there. It was a biker bar. 
and they put us way away from the audience. And I told the woman who owned it, I said, we need to be up close. So she didn't like, she, because she said, after you all are through, we dance here. Mm-hmm. It was in 96 South Carolina. Okay. A hole in the wall. So Josh went up, and I said, Josh, I, I will back you up. He was just starting out. And I said, if you're not working, this is going to be a tough crowd. It was a lot of heavy sick tattoos and all that. So Josh didn't do well. He'll tell you. I'd love be worth him telling you the story. So he didn't do well at all. They said, get off the stage, get off the stage. Oh, they yelled at him? To, to Josh. Uh-huh. And he was still sort of virginal. So I went up, and I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do it? And I said, I, at that point, it made no difference because I wasn't going to do material. They weren't there for material. Right. So I said, I have never seen so many fat fucks in my whole life <laughs> with those stupid Clemson shirts on. And they loved it, Josh Ware. They really did. Oh, wow. But they could have hated it. Mm-hmm. But the thing, part of this was my age working for me in that case. They weren't going to hit me. I wasn't like a six foot five, you know, that they could challenge me. And I'm pointing them out. I said, yeah, you with that stupid Clemson shirt and the hair on there, you stink. You're a fat. They liked it. That's what they liked was playing with them, bringing them into the show. Right. Just the attention of that, as tacky as it was. So that was a fun moment for, for me. And Joshin talks about that moment a lot because he, he thought comedy was going to be like in Buckhead, where it's right. always sweet and everybody's nice. Mm-hmm. Not quite like that. What about an unfun moment? I, I, you've been doing comedy over 55 years. There's got to be a show where people were yelling at you like they did Josh that night. Some of the most... Not obvious, maybe, if you were in the audience, but to me, I'm a middle left politically. Okay. Quite often, far to the left. I was getting a lot of work from um, people, corporate, who pay really good money, and I let my politics get in the way. And these were mostly conservative and even Mm right-wingers in the southeast. And I'd be doing my show and get that same reaction from them, but it was a more... Because they were more uh, polite, it was even harder. I knew they were hating me. (laughs) And the more they hated me, the more I would say, these Republicans are taking us down into all that stuff. Oh, wow. I'm not like Bill Maher. I like Bill Maher a lot, but I couldn't get away with what he gets away, or even Jon Stewart. They're brilliant, and they don't care. Part of this is not caring. I I need to make a living, so I care in a regard that's technical. Right. I don't want to not get work. I'm not that brazen or bold to offend people as if I don't care if you like me. You also want to get rebooked at these places. That's what I mean. Yeah, Yeah. because they pay. I I don't have money, so I need to keep working and keep working. Even now, I still like to work and make a living. But that those were hard moments to get those stares of this guy's a real. Why did we book him? Mm Mm-hmm. Who booked this guy? So I learned from that to sort of moderate my politics and not get, I don't have to preach and I don't have to have people think I'm the coolest. How has the booking kind of changed as you've gotten older? Is there sort of an ageism that comes into play in comedy? There is. Some of the clubs tell me, which I respect, that I've aged out the way I look of their crowd. And sometimes they'll say, you know, you're still good as most of what we have, but we have 20-year-olds here. There's a club I still work that is the youngest club in America. It's called Comedy Zone in Greensboro. Okay. They do four sellout shows going on 20 years, two Friday, two Saturday, all young ones. That's my hometown. 
So the guy still books me because I do draw. And he said, Jerry, we know your crowd. They'll have breathing machines and coming in with <laughs> oxygen and so on. But I love going there. And I still work in the fact that I'm born there and a native. But it's an amazing operation in Greensboro, North Carolina. You know Comedy Zone? Yeah, I know right? that. Yeah, It's absolutely. probably their busiest club. But I prefer not to go where I'm going to make young ones uncomfortable. But there are other clubs, like in Greenville, South Carolina, also a comedy zone. It's a mix. They're 70-year-olds sitting with 25-year-olds. That's a great mix for me. And you're, I guess you're embracing age, at least. I mean, you're, I've you're come about to, to be 78, Let me say I've come right? to terms with it. I'll be 78. Uh, come to terms. I've come to terms with it because I like it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and... That also helps in thinking clearly because I'm not going to be 50 again. I'm not going to be 70 again. It's sort of startling, but hey, I look in the mirror, it is what it is. So I own it. Is it what you thought it would be? I really didn't think I'd feel this energy at 78. As I, You know, I, I kept thinking, well, because I fell into those stereotypes, which are, oh, oh after 60, you, most of it's gone. Yeah. It is for a lot of people. I think a lot of it is their headset. Some people age and they just get tired and they and, and don't really think they can keep reinventing. You can reinvent. Woody Allen just signed the biggest TV deal ever. Wow. Did you know that? With, uh -uh. Uh, with Amazon. I think it was $25 million wow. to produce 30-minute New York show. He's not going to be in them. He's mm -hmm. writing and producing. And they interviewed Chris Rock and Louis C.K., what they thought of Woody Allen at this at 80 getting and they said it's the most remarkable thing but they weren't surprised I saved the article to read to you guys an open mics not to discard somebody over 50 because Jeff Bezos who's one of the wealthiest men in the world said I want Woody Allen the other ones can do that but I know Woody's work he's going to do my New York show for me is it all this this mentality is it all just mental or are you you physically taken care of yourself as well because you were state champ at wrestling and I you also great, I was a very wrestled good in college. I would, pardon me. I was a good yeah. wrestler. Mm -hmm. For an interesting reason, I'm raised Jewish in the South. Yeah. In a small little town. It was a tobacco town, a mill town. And Jews weren't the most, well, you know, we were supposed to have killed God. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, told I was at Myrtle Beach when all that happened. <laughs> and kids would pick on me. Yeah. And my older brother, Barry, who's 86, he's still on New York radio. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah, he is. Thanks for bringing it up. I'm real proud of him. <laughs> he would have loved those shows that I was doing my podcast because he's to the right of Ted Cruz. Okay. So we don't talk much politics. But he's a <laughs> lovely guy. He's got a good sense of humor. But the point is, uh, so I wrestled because when you wrestle, it's your own size. Mm-hmm. Let me equate it to what we do for a living, you and I, and thousands of us. Many times, you ever seen an act on TV that you know is making, and you'd say, God, if nobody knew his name and they didn't know mine, I'd love to compete against him. Because Definitely. the show, you would say, I bet you'd, okay. Definitely. I've said it a uh. lot. I said, let me have a chance at him with the same 200 people at Punchline, and just let me have an opportunity. I like my chances. So that comes from a wrestling competitive thing, yeah. right? and that also helps to keep me in the game because though I have aged out some, I haven't nearly aged out of corporate. So you, you still exercise a lot physically to keep this energy I walk four energy miles out? every day. 
Okay. Rain or shine. I live on the Beltline, which is a great spot right downtown and blessed. And I don't jog, but I walk fast. And I was wrestling with my little boy until last year, and, and we used to wrestle since he's eight. I never let him win, but mm-hmm. he owns me now. Yeah. How old is he now? He's almost 16. Okay, well, I'd hope he could beat you at yeah. 16. <laughs> but see, in my mind, he'd have to be 30. And you know, but uh-huh. we, It was funny. We were at the beach last summer, and there was a place to wrestle. And he said, you want to I said, sure. So in 10 seconds, I couldn't breathe. You know, so. <laughs> and we had a rule when he was a kid. If I hit the table or the floor of the mat, it was over. So I, so I did this. This is funny. So, and I was really winded. And he said, Dad, I think I own you now. And I said, why? He said, because it took me 10 seconds. And he is strong. I said, there's a difference. I'm not mad at you. I said, I was mad, Josh. I think it would be different. He said, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> so that, that's the end of us wrestling, I think. <laughs> so let me ask you, let me turn the tables oh, a minute. Okay. What is your dream? You're very good at what you do. What, do oh, you have a, you. A, an idea of what you... I mean, every wrestler wants to be a state champion. What would be your dream as a youngster doing comedy? Because it's changed a lot since I was in my prime. Yeah, and that's actually a question I was going to ask you. But me personally, I want to be influential. You know, I'm not really, I I always say, like, I'm not aiming for the middle. You know, like, I'm really, I really want to kind of make an impact, not just in, in comedy, but internationally as well. Because now, with technology and everything, the world is getting smaller. Kevin Hart is selling out arenas right. around the world, mm-hmm. it, among other comedians. So, like, I really want to take it to an international level and also not just stand-up, but would like to do maybe, you know, TV or, I guess, internet TV will be by the time I get to that level, and film as well, and writing. Like, I really want to create a whole brand. But let me ask you this, the key question. Okay. What one or two things will you bring to it to make it that eventful. It's a great goal, what you portray. Uh, honesty mm-hmm. and quality, I think, were the two things I would say. Because a lot of, like you said, you see a lot of people on TV, and you're like, oh, I would like just to right. go head-to-head with them. A lot of them. But like you mentioned earlier as well, luck can play into it as well. But I right. think bringing an honesty will help me break through as well because people can take a facade for so long, especially with comedy. Right. Like You can have a one-hit wonder and music and people just rock out to that song their whole life but right. you know right. one hit wonder and comedy they're like oh i remember when i saw him back then but they don't think about it you know right. and the quality i think is something that gets lost in the mix especially with a lot of people getting success based on a youtube video or something like that you know it's there's got to be a quality to have that longevity and that's really what i focus on and everything i do is quality first i i endorse that and certify that you do that. John Stewart, I worked with like 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. He probably was close, maybe younger than you at Punchline, Sandy Spring. Wow. And I was really, I had a great set. John Stewart had a much better set. And after the show, people were coming up saying, oh, Jerry, good to, and go right to John Stewart. And I'm telling you why I think it was. Even then, he was, if you didn't read newspapers, you could get a lot of what you need from John Stewart. Mm. He wasn't just joking about this, and it wasn't something for adults. He was treating even 20-year-olds as if they should be aware of the world. 
not just the world, because if nothing comes in, I've said this to a lot of you guys, if nothing's coming in, nothing can go out. We're not that kind of genius. Meaning, one of my one of my greatest moments every day, and I do it every day, after I do Beltline, I go to Starbucks and read Wall Street Journal, New York Times, I read everything, because there'll always be an item that you could take something, being yeah. smart, and make a routine out of it. But if you're not doing that, the Internet's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. It is not the same pleasure. I'm a virgin to all that. Actually, Christina, who's helping us today, um, says that it's all on the Internet. It's not. Nothing like a New York Times. There's nothing like it. Uh, that's why it's the New York Times. And John Stewart was doing it when he was 15 because his parents made him read. He read a book a week. You ever wow. heard? I mean, a book, a book a yeah. week. Right? So he was literate. And his show is literate. And it's not uh, luck that he's making 12 to 20 million a year. That's not luck. Stephen Colbert, the same. Yeah. These are really smart young people. Do you, you agree with that or you think they're lucky? Percent. No, I mean, I, I think they definitely paid their dues and worked their way up the ladder. I really think so. Uh, Joel, I think the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. And there will always be another comic that, that's loud and smiles beautifully and all that. But I think John Stewart's just there for the duration. He can do whatever he wants. Bill Maher, who I think is a little less talented, but I love Bill. I've worked with him also. He's a smart guy. Mm-hmm. And he took that leap of faith where he said, I'm a liberal and you can go fuck yourself. But this is who I am. If everybody does that, not many people will make it the way Bill Maher did. I mean, he's, he had yeah. a nice face to go with it. You know, and he had yeah. all those. He had a lot going for him. So Plus, there are a lot of liberals that really follow him like a, a leader. I mean, not a leader, but, you know, uh, to blow their whistle, Bill Maher. So were you attracted to those people back in the day as well, like a Mort Saul? Like I was. Bruce? I, I very much was. Like yeah, but it wasn't natural. My parents made us read. We had to read. Mm-hmm. We did book reports. Once a week, we read a book a week, but they were small in the sixth grade. And I was, that's when I got used to public speaking. We talked in front of people. You know the biggest fear of humans? Do you know what it is? It's public speaking? Yes. And number two? Heights? Death. Death. <laughs> All right. And, and, and Jerry Seinfeld had this great line about it. He said, number one, fear of public speaking. Number two is dying. So if you have to do a eulogy at a gravesite, you're better off being in the casket than making uh, the thing. That yeah. was one of Jerry Seinfeld's early lines. Uh-huh. He's another one that's a smart. You know, they're smart. Yeah. And I think that the audiences want that. It's like some audiences have told me, even some of my bits would say, I loved your show. I love comedy. I hear a lot of funny things, but you've made me think. So to them, they would say some of them would be like, it's eating a good green salad. Hmm. I love that. When somebody would say it, I don't hear it every show. But that's the way I feel when I listen to somebody. Like, I want to hear more of them, quite often less of the other one. It doesn't mean they're not funny. It doesn't mean who I don't like aren't the most brilliant ones. Yeah. I just got tired of, I liked Richard Pryor probably the most. I like Mel Brooks, who I saw also do a live show. He was brilliant. He was br- they were brilliant. Wow. And you can dismiss them because they're old, but we can learn from them the same way young generals today study what old generals did. It's the only way you can really learn, right, you know, is to learn from their mistakes and from their success is what the old ones did. I don't know how somebody can do it. I don't know any geniuses that just, I'm so clever. Because the ones you read who did it, they tell you who they got it from. 
Woody Allen's the first to tell you he studied every Marx Brothers move and all mm. those. I mean, he okay. he told me I stole from this one. He says it. I took from that one, and made a composite, meaning that if you think I'm brilliant, I'm not. I take from everybody because he studied everybody. What about you though? What do you what do you take? I from do the then? same thing when I'm doing a, a pr an average good show. I have a lot of filler. You know what filler is? Just stuff that just padding the time until you get to your main events. Yeah, yeah. You have some main events in your show. Yeah. I have three or four, I think, five main events. But in the meanwhile, I've got to do an hour show. So I fill it with yeah. quick ones. A moving target's hard to hit. So the quicker the mm -hmm. punchline, you can move on. And you have that old school style. I mean, it is a lot of like, you know, set up punch, one liner. A lot of it. One liner. That's, that's kind of a more old school style. It is more, more drawn out now. It, it, absolutely. I'm not hip or clever enough. One advantage I had was I never, ever had a moment where I thought I was hip or clever. I really okay. didn't because they can de derail you. Uh, you know who said that? Dennis Miller, who has had a good success. He said he wished he hadn't have been working at being so hip because he lost a lot of crowd. He said, I was trying to be hip. You can't try to be hip. Even yeah. you're sort of born, you're, you're jazzers. You either have that or you don't. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, doesn't mean you're not going to be a big star. But once you're hip today, it doesn't mean you're hip tomorrow. So when you're working at actively being a whatever, you know, how you dress or whatever. I mean, I've been dressing old school forever. Yeah, since I was in high school, Carolina, Matar Hill, you know. Yeah, we, we're doing a show and you're headlining in, you know, a T-shirt and, like, sandals. It's funny. It's, that's your style. Every time I see you, you're just wearing, like a, like, a crew neck shirt. Because I try through the audience to get closer to real. I mm. love real. Mm-hmm. I wish I had, you've got a great smile. I love good smiles and, uh, you know, people who, but underneath that, like this little documentary that was made. Yeah, geriatric. It's pretty sobering. It's about my gambling problem. Yeah. And it really almost brought me down. I lived through it. Mm -hmm. The help of friends and just getting it together. But it had me like a wrestler. Everything I do, I equate to wrestling. Mm -hmm. Life gets you or you handle life. Ultimately, I hear life wins, ultimately. Um, do you think that because you it also I, I saw the documentary and it was great and it also it touched on the gambling and also your temper as yeah, well mm -hmm. and do you think those two I guess lack of a better term I guess flaws I mean we all have them but um, do you think those maybe those two specifically held you back from taking like a more national spotlight I'm not sure that I didn't gamble as an excuse. I'm really not sure. I, I, I'm certainly, it was an awareness one time. Well, I'm not really good enough. My fans, that we always have fans that think we should be out there. Right. And I'm, I think, you know, I think drugs and whatever are, that waylay our career, you could say when you're young, it doesn't work when you're old, you could say, well, really, I could have made it if I hadn't been drinking so much. Mm -hmm. Could have made it if I hadn't been gambling. In fact, when I started gambling, I loved sports. I still do. I mean, it was fun to watch a football game on a Monday night or wh whatever, but it got out of control. I remember I had $10,000 on a game one time and won. Oh, jeez. And it was, a, well, I owed him $8,800, so I won $1,000. But had I lost, it would have been the end. But I won, so it kept me in action. You understand? It was like, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to understand. What I mean is... I, I, I bet and won, so yeah. I thought my luck had changed. So I kept on betting, lost another hundred thousand dollars. Hundred thousand dollars, easily. So you performed 
through the the comedy boom and all this when they were just throwing money at comedians. So I was like, making a real I was making a good living. I never not did a show because I had owed a bookie the next day. I mean, I was able thankfully wow. to keep boxing. You know, to keep not going down. We used to have a wrestling coach said, "You may lose, but I don't want you to get pinned. You don't have to be pinned. I'm going to show you. You don't have to be pinned." So that, that really and I wasn't Ninth grade. That was part of the image I had. Okay, I will overcome this and I'll overcome it. I did with a lot of help from friends and family. And just one day quit. I was such uh, dis- disgusted with who I had become. Yeah. As a just slug, you know, because I had lovely people around me. Never wanted for good quality humans that believed in me. Some left, but most stayed around and got through it. What was that rock bottom? It was being at a movie and seeing people in line, and I owed every one of them different amounts of money. Wow. And the way they would look at me, my God, what a slug, what a, what a disgusting human, you know, what a failed human. Mm-hmm. And I was young, still young, thinking I'm not going to, I'm through with it. I just, there was that disgust that won my interest in gambling, and it was not fun anymore. There was nothing... I think one day I had a realization I can never win what I've lost, so just quit. Um, mm. Still got not ahead, but I have ahead. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I, to... <laughs> I can never, you know, I would never. You know who had a gambling problem at the same time? Walter Matthau, the movie actor. Yeah. A lot of show people did, too. Jack Lemmon, they all, but they were making millions, but they lost millions. It's in their books. Uh, and they didn't talk about it much during their career, but later in life they talk about them those uh, fracture I call them the fractures in your life mm-hmm. you also have had three wives would that was that influenced from they your weren't gambling? mine they were my friend's wife that's what uh, you are um, there's the one-liner the, the anger came from being such a failed human failing my, my anger yeah anger I would take it out on you but it was really me I was disgusted with that I was going to go back and bet on games and mm-hmm. and, and um, I think it's like alcoholic See, I believe this, that when people drink and they say something ugly, having been an addict, I think that people who, who drink say the things they really feel. And in gambling, it came out like getting mad quickly because mm-hmm. I was living with disgust. It's hard to do. So what have you replaced that with? Just this love of being alive. Um, I'd already quit years before my kid was born, but having a child, really, if you have that a grain of civility and uh, muscle, mm-hmm. emotional muscle, you just give that up because that child becomes your life then, right? Yeah. And you grow up. Not everybody. I was lucky that I was already through when this little kid came into my life, Joshua. So, but I, I've been through it. But I also think it gives you something on stage too, a little... Uh, it's okay to have some fracture because most humans, were they telling their truth, they would have fracture. Right? It could be yeah. an ugly divorce. It could be drugs. It could be somebody beating up a wife, a wife abusing the children. It's all over the place. So by coming clean in this documentary, I truly feel I was expunged from a lot of the guilt that I carried because being one, I can relate to when others are hiding and sh- parading and clothing themselves in ways that They'd love to wear a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah. To cut to the quick. 
and the documentary focuses on not only the gambling and the temper, but also you being like a, a well-known figure in Atlanta. But in a 55-year career, did you ever make a move to New York or L.A. and try to... I went to New York. Uh, good. You're the best. Jimmy Fallon, watch out. We've got Joe Byers coming. I went to New York in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. Stayed six months. Had a place to stay. And every comic I saw... New York had comedy clubs. Had, had some small... One was more brilliant. One was more like John Stewart than the other one. They were all into, like, New York, which is, a, quite honestly, a pretty intellectual scene there. My Georgia routine did not work at all. <laughs> you know, nothing I did. Dick jokes and stuff. They just, uh, they were a sharper crowd. Because yeah. they have to be. You live in negotiate New York, you've done something. Yeah. Whether you're a star or not, just to get through New York. Yeah. So I decided to come back to Atlanta, where I had friends have a little place to live. I could afford my life in Atlanta. Gambling came after that in my 30s. Started gambling. Did you ever try to get on the Carson while you were up no, there? No, I didn't. Mm -mm. Nope. That was a tough one for me. I was never really, and I always had to keep earning being secure because I never uh. felt secure. I love the guys that feel like they own it, right? And that they own it. I own my personal life. But when I'm on stage, I'm still pretty fragile. I mean, I have to, I don't ever go on thinking I'm going to nail this crowd. I never think that. So you didn't think you were worthy of even trying to get on the Carson Not, show? Not at that time, because this is the thing you've got to understand. My standards were a Woody Allen or okay. a Lenny Bruce. They were people that were saying things that I knew much more substantial than things were coming from me. Mm. Okay. I was sort of a yokel to my Jewish friends. I was a, just, a, I should stay down where... People could relate to it easier. Working the road a lot and everything. Yeah, but it's some a fun fact. A lot of people don't know about you is you don't fly. I don't. You drive. You've driven everywhere pretty I, much. The, the, the longest trip was to Michigan, Escanaba. It was three days going up there. I mean, it was Joe. It was eight hours due north of Detroit. A friend went with me, and I loved it. I did four shows there. I remember, I made sixty-five hundred dollars in four days. Wow! And it was worth it. And I was going to have to fly one of those small planes anyway out of Detroit. I wouldn't go. So I drove. And I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I wouldn't do it for 20 grand. It was just too much. And, and, um, Is the fear of flying? Absolutely. Well, I yeah. had an uncle who was killed in the Second World War. In a, he was a pilot. And I was with my grandmother when she got the news. And she grabbed me so hard, screaming and crying. She lived in Baltimore. In one of those row houses, all the neighbors were right. They heard it on the radio. He was a very popular uh, kid. He was a Baltimore tennis champion. And he was also a colonel in the Air Force. He got shot down. Mm. That's, I'm sure, what did my flying flying. Wow. The screaming, the hysteria. And she never recovered from it, my grandmother. Okay. So <sighs> I just want to make a statement about what I noticed from that. Yeah. When I see mothers or fathers at a store grabbing a child, you know, like, come here. I want to go to them and say, don't do that. You don't know what moment you stunt a child forever just by being too, you know, mm -hmm. I don't see it a lot, but I've seen them enough to where, come here, you and it and it hurts me. I feel that because the children are pretty fragile. They need us to, to you know, I have to always give them sugar, but right. grabbing and because you don't know, we're all different. That moment with my grandmother squeezing me, I was six years old maybe, 
seven, but I remember it like I'm talking to you. I was hysterical, right? Yeah. Because she lost it. The neighbors lost it. Oh, our Manny, our Manny. That was his name, Manny Farber. So, and you know what? I do enjoy driving. Yeah. I mean, driving <laughs> eight or nine hours is still... Go back to driving. You're like, I had this traumatic life experience, but I don't mind driving. You know, I, I, well, I'm scarred I, for life. I, let me tell you driving. why. <laughs> when books on radio, when you can listen to a book, mm. Joe, it's really great to to uh, yeah. to absorb new information. Yeah. Because I think that's where we may get the next idea for your show at Punchline or wherever. It's got to come from outside of us. That's my take on us. I don't know you that well, but yeah. I know a lot of comics, and they don't even know what was happening in the news that day. And I know this, for the more, if I will, a more clued-in crowd, a lot of what we do won't work for them. They're certainly not going to pay us for what a lot comes out of our mouth. Right. It's the refining process. Yeah, they want to know that we're at least smart, as smarter than they are, maybe. That's why John Stewart is so popular. Presidents of countries want to talk to him. Yeah. But this being an Atlanta-based podcast and you having such an influential impact on Atlanta, I would love, we kind of touched on the race a little bit, but maybe even just more of a broader sense, like how has the, the city of Atlanta, whether it be socially, culturally, economically, how has it evolved from the 60s when you moved here to now? Well, where I live now, for instance, would have cost me $150. Now it's $1,500. Mm-hmm. So since when I moved here, you know, car, you, you could do anything. I bought a house in Midtown right by Piedmont Park, a block or so, and I paid 42000 Wow. I just sold wow. for 509000 <laughs> Didn't do much to it. That, for starters, tells you what's changing. Wow. Right? Yeah. I could never qualify to buy it again. So I was very lucky. I didn't lose everything, I bet. That bet on that house you won that bet. paid off. Right? Yeah. Uh, this is another avenue that I've used, not because I thought, oh, I'll do this. It just worked out. Charities are a great source mm-hmm. to volunteer. You may not make any money. You don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to make $500. But you go in to help. It's a muscle we learn. We have to give back. If we're not giving, audiences pick up on that too. If you're basically a generous human or you're basically a selfish human. And I think as young ones grow up, they'd rather be all things being equal. If you're funny and I, but you appear to be the generous of spirit, they'll go to you before they'll go to me. Yeah, you won a humanitarian award. I did. I have no idea why anymore, but it was for, <laughs> what was it? You did so much research, I can't believe Was that it. for the Atlanta Task Force for the Homeless? It was, no, for animal rights. I really oh, okay. was into, had a lot of animals. But you know what? I did it. Uh, let, me, let me tell you how it started. Somebody okay. asked me a long time ago. The first show I did was American Cancer. They saw a show and they said, would you ever come up? And it was free. They used me again and again. I think the fourth time they said, we're going to pay you this time. I said, oh, I don't want money. Of course, I did want money. So they paid me $250. That was a long time ago. It was a lot of money. It still is. From there, then it became multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis. And at one time in the city, they all would use Jerry Farber. The price was right, which was free or whatever their budget would allow. Mm. But I really got into doing that. It made me go home at night. It also helped neutralize some of the gambling thing because I was doing all at the same time. Is this around the same time you ran for mayor? 
twice? Twice. <laughs> the first time I was, uh, first time I ran for mayor twice against Andy Young and then Maynard Jackson. Okay. And then one of the times I got a note from Andy Young that said, Jerry, we knew each other from charity stuff, you know, and he sent me a note. It was very funny. He said, Jerry, I understand you're running too. I'll vote for you or against you, whatever you want me to do. <laughs> you know, and my mother said, what do you do if you win? I said, I'll demand a recount, you know, <laughs> because I wouldn't have had any idea what to do. But that was publicity. That was all for comedy? I went. Not for comedy. Okay. It was for the, to enhance the humanity. I went more than any other candidate to every place in Atlanta to find out what was going on, to find out about the city I was living in. Yeah. And I was a youngster and made a good presentation. You got to make a speech everywhere you went. I remember talking about gambling. This is also in the newspapers. You might find that research on Christina. I was talking about legalized uh, gambling in Atlanta. Other states were already doing it. And every time you read the paper, there's no money for schools. This was then, too. We're out of money. We're out of money. This kids don't have to lunch month, whatever. I said, a horse track. Put one in Savannah, one in Atlanta. And I did all my research. Matter of fact, the Gaming Commission called me a lot. We met because they thought that I really was for real. You know? Yeah. They thought that I had more uh, backing than I, in fact, did. Because they knew that and now we have a lottery. And you started that, you and think? What? You had an influence? It started on that? after that. Yeah, wow. I never thought. I never had the thought until you mentioned it that I would have something to do. I certainly brought it to the attention. Wow. Uh, and now I brought the magazine to show you. The next thing is weed, because the state of Colorado took in two years ago $700 million. This was two years ago mm-hmm. for, for their, on their legalized tax money, which they sorely needed, not as much as Georgia needs it. And it's 19 states. Can I can I show it? Do you go, <laughs> can we advertise this? I, I know most comics are going to like it. Well, it's, third news, sponsor. it's Newsweek. I mean, it's a responsible Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, right? yeah, it's Newsweek. And it's, the whole thing is dedicated. It is a, it's a weed issue. Am I selling it to you? No, I don't sell pot. I have definitely smoked pot. And still? I've never met a policeman still. Uh-huh. I've never met a policeman that wouldn't much rather deal with somebody high because they'll be singing Cat Stevens songs or Van Morrison songs. They may be naked in the car, but they're not going to want a fist fight. That's the truth. That is absolutely true. Ask any police officer if they have to deal with somebody's traffic ticket. They'd much rather have a pothead than, a, than an alcoholic. How old were you the first time you smoked marijuana? Well, that was I was a kid then in my 30s. 30s. When I came back to Atlanta and really settled in, and a lot of the musicians were smoking pot then, tripping. I was tripping on mescaline a lot. Oh, you did all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I would be Just tripping smiling. and performing. Oh, my gosh. And I really think some of my what? best moments were, especially on piano. Was, you know how they say, yeah. a lot of people would say, and I agree with them, too. They say, well, people who are high think they're clever. Or, right. I think they're, and they're really idiots. Mm-hmm. Say it about jazzers. I would, I acknowledge the um, the opinion, but I disagree. It does free you up. Either the pot to relax and the mescaline. I was playing the piano. Like, I have uh, videos of it. And I was really playing. You know why? Because my limit, I had no limits. Yeah. And in my comedy show, unfortunately, I, I put restrictions because I've had to work for a living and I never made it, meaning um, Kevin Hart, those kind of successes. That's what kind of confused me, and I wanted to ask you about. 
in jazz is a lot of you know improvisation is right. big in jazz but in stand-up you the documentary talks about how you've done the same jokes for years and years and years is yes. there like a disconnect improvising well, no, comedy what the and documentary jazz? unclear i've had thousands of jobs mm -hmm. and if this crowd sees me here when i go to gastonia they don't know jerry farber so but if one person from here saw me in gastonia say that's the same show i saw last night i said for you it is but not for them however to your point way too many people have complained that you do the same show. Of course, my defense is, well, Dean Smith, coach of Carolina, won five championships with the same 2-2-1 two, two, mm -hmm. basketball, 2-2-1, two, two, okay. which is a defense about not being more creative. <laughs> but I do believe that I can make that show work. I mean, I still, I, I, I've gotten better at an old show. I, yeah. I mean, I know how to do my material. Even working with you the other night, I pulled some jokes out of a, a bag, some gynecology joke, mm -hmm. and I could feel that it was working made people nervous but you were there but the women i know had fun with it it was totally harmless yeah i mean you know it's certainly not a dirty joke the real but just stretching it out and i do i'm an old school guy you saw that you acknowledge it and i certainly live with it and the old school was different today today is a much hipper look a lot of what the young ones talk about when they're saying something is hipper but it can always be hipper Hipper, 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 right? Hipper, right? Do you agree with that or not? What do you think? I mean, tell me what you. I'm real curious to know what young guys uh, think. How it because one day as hip as you are now, if you keep working at being hip, I would suggest that you're going to be ones you'll keep growing. Mm -hmm. But because youth is hip, young people aren't necessarily hip at all. But youth itself is hip. Well, what I find in in comedy is like the one-liner you know is where it's starting everything but at the core you still got to have that mechanism at Absolutely. the end of the day the joke has to be there and a, a lot of comedy now yeah it's hip but it's not always funny outside of the people that look like them right you know right. so it is there is that market of like hey we're all here wearing flannel shirts and we're all this is funny me talking about killing puppies you know well jazz no exactly jazz comedy there is such a lenny bruce was a jazz comic it was only funny to people who know or play jazz or really like jazz not yeah. nearly everybody does mm -hmm. right so the people who weren't felt like well he's not bringing us in right woody allen's is primarily for that new york i think extra bright neurotic life of uh how they sometimes don't tell the truth to each other, you know, have double, triple lives and all that stuff. Uh, and he owns it because New York is clever as they are. Just like a lot of it, they have double lives. Yeah. And he's captured that sort of angst. And is there a reason to be alive? I love all that angst because I questioned while I was having coffee with you, is there a reason for everything we go through? The war, the cancer. The slaughter of the creatures, slaughter of humans. I mean, I do have those thoughts in my mind a lot. And I noticed them slipping out on stage last, because la last week was the first time I had seen you like do a headlining set where like, okay, mm -hmm. you're the main event. Mm -hmm. And you would say like a gynecology joke and then bring up something about the war and then just move past it. Like, it's almost like you want to go there, but you're holding back still. I am still holding back. But you've been doing comedy uh, over 55 years. Where, what's holding you back at this point? I think one of the points is one of my wives said it, that even as a lover, that I was holding back. 
and she fell in love with me because she saw me on stage and thought, God, this would be a wild and woolly, you know, a, yeah. fun, a fun human, which I'm definitely not. That was in the documentary, by the way. Mm-hmm. Remember Roberta? Yeah. So people would say to her, God, he must be a lot of fun. Well, I'm the expert in who I am. I can be a lot of fun, but I'm not basically a lot of fun. I live in my head. Yeah. And I have these, uh, I think, morbid and realistic thoughts. The world is a savage place. And for a lot of people. And for the animals, it's savage, brutal. You know, slaughter. Meat, we don't even think about eating. I went to a slaughterhouse, and I seldom oh. eat meat anymore. Oh, because geez. I was about your age. I was 28 and married yeah. to a woman who was a vegetarian then, is a vegan now. And she said, I want you to see what you're eating. So she took me to a slaughterhouse, and it was the screaming and all that. You know, that it was like, God, how can I... My mother used to say this, too. She said a lot of these things this a long time ago. She said, if the children could see the hamburger made, they wouldn't be anxious to gobble a couple. <laughs> right. I believe yeah. that. I, I, I do believe that. It's about being conscious. Mm-hmm. Now, some people say, I'm conscious enough. I got 70% conscious. That's enough. Well, as I approach the end of a, you know, the end, I love the idea of being conscious to really, I think we know more when we're conscious instead of just going out and getting drunk and getting high and everything like that. I've done all that. So you must be, I mean, just winding it down here. I know you've, it's, you know, it's middle of the afternoon. It's about nap time for you. Stop so, uh, <laughs> so No, but I did go to a cemetery yesterday, and they chased me with shovels. That was not a fun experience. <laughs> Three guys with yellow shirts on, they were chasing me. Well, you have a lot of influential, you know, things to say and so much experience to draw from. I mean, is there, is there anything else you want the world to know? That's all right. I should have thought you may ask it such a good question. I question a lot more than I have any answers, but I tell you, every moment of a life is to be cherished. Corny as it is, mm-hmm. we waste. When you get to be in your 50s, 60s, you'll say, God, I wasted so much time worrying about, when I talk about the world as savage, I'm concerned about it, I feel it, but I'm not lying in bed worrying about what I can do. I do what I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not eat meat. Because every time I eat a meat, it's dead flesh. But I would sit with you and enjoy meals with you, and you can do it. I'm not imposing that. I'm aware of it. Right. And I'm not the only one. There are more and more and more and more people who are becoming conscious, right? Yeah. And, and for me, it's late in life. It is working more about what I eat, working out, and wanting to be alive. And my funeral is planned. I'm going to be uh, cremated, and my ashes will be spread at Piedmont Park probably be on my website but we're going to have a bag of pot <laughs> put in the ashes and they're, they're going to roll 10 joints and everybody will take a hit off me and that'll be and that'll be it and you can tell jokes and you all can sit around and said who owes what do you owe you what do I owe? right but i'll remember this one this was a great of the few podcasts i've done you're a great you have great questions oh thank you i love homework and you certainly did yours i i mean you've invested so much in comedy and life in your career and i wanted to invest the same in you you know i think that's that's the least you could do because in researching this there wasn't really i mean you've been on npr and i mean you've have accolades you've been voted atlanta's entertainer of the year like Mm -hmm. three times and you you have all this but there wasn't really an interview with you where it's like in depth and like well where did he come from how did he get here you know because the documentary kind of touches on it which i recommend anybody to see i mean it was I appreciate great that. and insightful and funny and engaging but i just feel like you know you need 
you're kind of, you know, your everything we talk about, your style of comedy and everything, it's kind of, I mean, it's not expired, but it's, I mean, you know, they're not making them like you they, anymore, they, I guess they They don't they make say. them much anymore, but it's like the old original Coca-Cola. But I want to say one thing, though. I did think of one more thought. Yeah. Is that the awards, and I have awards in Toronto, and I used to have them in my home. I put up a trophy or something. I took them all down. One moment, I got tired of seeing them. More important, I got tired of a Joe Byers walking into my house and seeing those things. You ever go to a lawyer's office, they've got all their degrees? Mm -hmm. Well, I can promise you, if I know one thing about me anyway, those are hollow victories. We all want them, but when you get them, if awards and fame and glory meant something, then Elvis would be here, Mary Monroe would be here, um, stars who kill them. And they know because it's hollow. You still have to keep groping for who you are not just the fame or the money you may make, but your worth as a human. I'm still challenging, still trying to earn that. You must have some great memorabilia, at least you've held on to over the years. I have naked pictures of everybody that <laughs> not to, but have been in my house. Because the rule you have to tell, you can leave your shoes and socks on. But, so, but uh, do, do you get that? You're a youngster, but do you get that, the, that life is such a gift and it's finite, it's not infinite? Yeah, And I think that we can hug ourselves, even if there's nobody else to do it, better than you can't hug the awards. They mm. don't mean anything. You get them. Mm -hmm. They're nice to get. It's old news. My brother is a Hall of Fame. That's a big deal. Hall yeah. of Fame talk show host. He can't even find what he did with the, you know, it's a nice plaque signed by all the big shots and everything. Yeah. Because he just he's 86. He just wants to stay alive and see his grandson every day. I mean, that, that to him is what life is. It's not sitting back saying, oh, I'm a Hall of Famer. He, he allows where he young and got it, it may be where he'd go into a restaurant with a swagger. But it's, to me, it's sort of a hollow victories. So what, you brush over all the, quote, hollow victories. So what do you want to be remembered as? Well, starting with my son, I want him to have good memories of a father that was still energetic and glad to have him on earth. Mm-hmm. And number two, that some of you guys will be huddled around and talk about the old school Jerry Farber. That would be a fun thing to think may happen. But if it doesn't, I'm okay. It's been a great ride. And this is a great interview you've done. Thank you so uh, I've much. I've been on a lot of shows, but not uh, you, you really did great homework. Thank you. And I appreciate it. And continued success. And you too as well. Good luck. And with I all hope you make it big because I'll need the money because <laughs> I'm going to bet on Carolina tonight to beat Duke. How do you like them apples? <laughs> Well, please, it's been a long journey, but it's not over. Let the people know where they can keep up with you and your schedule and everything. Well, can I promote the show? Two are coming up. Yeah, promote. That's what promote. Promote away. February 28th. Matter of fact, you should come and you'll be our guest. I'm doing okay. a show with Johnny Perazzo and Jim Gossett, who's a brilliant comic, mm -hmm. at a place called Tapa Tapa. It's in Midtown by the Opry Diem. It's right a block from Piedmont Park. And I'm going to be doing Sunday night shows there. Okay starting on the 28th. And my birthday acknowledgement is going to be here at the Punchline March 12th. Nice. You'll be 78. 78. Wow. Well, congratulations. And I got a prostate to prove anybody questions. <laughs> can beat up your prostate for sure. My, mine can. But it's 78. You know, I don't feel it yet. I will one day. I know I look it. I saw it on that documentary. I couldn't <laughs> believe how ugly I look. My kid even said, he said, Dad, i got to do something with those wrinkles. You have a website for people to keep up with you? Are you on the internet? Do. do you know what the internet is? I don't know. I, I do, but I have to ask Christina. Do I have a website or anything? <laughs> yes, sir. We have a website. It's called J 
Jerry Farber's Jerry Farber Jerry Farber Show But I'm on YouTube. How do they? I mean, why is it on you? I don't even know. I am on YouTube. Oh, you can search them on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. That's like Google for videos. It is. Okay. Yeah. It's Okay. But he has okay. Facebook, and most oh. of the promotion is on Facebook. Okay. It's Jerry Farber Comedy Music. Jerry Farber Comedy Music on Facebook. You know what's for fun? I didn't even know I have it. You don't even know. You just... And, <laughs> and, and you know what? One thing, one of the good advantages, technically, is you live this long, there's still agencies that remember me, mm -hmm. and some of it for good work. They'll still call me, so I don't really... I'm not proactive. I want you to be proactive, because you, you should, and you have to be. Social media is a huge component of comedy now, and you're like, I didn't even know I was on social media. I really didn't. I know I'm on YouTube because somebody yeah. told me something. He has a Twitter, too. You're kidding me. Yes. He has a Twitter. I'm on tw Twitter? Is there something <laughs> called Twitter? I know I'm on Twitter. No, I think I heard Joe do something about Twitter and Twitter the other day. Uh, Joe I don't know. Anyway, that wasn't me. You're great, Joe. You're great. Want, Thank you so much, you Jerry Farber. You're really a good one. Thank you. You, too. If I had been your face and had your teeth and your hopes, I would have been a movie actor. I would have given up the comedy club. I would have gone right into movies. You know how addicting comedy is. You can't let it go is. of that. I know. I saw you the other day. You were loving every moment of it, deservedly so. Yeah, loving all and the so was I. rich white people's apathy right. towards a young, ambitious kid. Right. No, that was the best line ever. I loved it. Do you remember the line? You said, you know, now you'll see me on TV the next time we see each other. Something yeah, like that. I, did. I said I was going to be like really famous one day and you're going to be like, oh, we should have laughed at him. That was a really good one. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was a great interview. Thank you so much, Thank Jerry you, Farber. I really appreciate it. Take care. You too. Yay! There you have it. The legend himself, Jerry Farber. Thank you, Jerry, and thank you, listeners. What'd you think? Please share your feedback of the show on our iTunes page. That is the best and most effective way to have your voice heard all over the hot breath of verse. So thank you in advance for that. And thank you to my engineer, Among Garner, for keeping our sound tip-top, as well as my lady, Erin Rogers, for the groove and theme song. And, of course, I can't forget our sponsor, Waxenwick, I'm in love with these soy candles. They're hand-poured. You're supporting a good cause and a nice up-and-coming company. So head on over to waxandwick.co. Type in the code 40OFFJOELBUYERS to get 40% off your order. Yeah, the number 40, the word off, and then my name to get 40% off your order at waxandwick.co. So, it's time to go. Until next Monday. I've been Joel Byers. You've been listening to Hot Breath. Oh, oh.